the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us again. Follow us on social media, including Parlor at Dan Proft. And uh, the website, podcast, danprofshow.com, as well as iTunes and Spotify. We begin tonight by updating some of the uh, electoral challenges in courts of law, as well as the court of public opinion. But uh, the counts, uh, the count going on in Georgia, that is the hand recount that is scheduled to be completed by tomorrow. Uh, We find yesterday in Floyd County, twenty five hundred ballots were not properly uh, tabulated by the machinery, the scanners, and that uh, added 800 votes, approximately, round numbers, to Donald Trump's total in Georgia. He's still got some 13,000-odd to go, so we'll see. And this is amid uh, much acrimony in Georgia between uh, the Secretary of State there and uh, other Republicans, his accusations that uh, Republicans, including Lindsey Graham uh, next door in South Carolina, are trying to pressure him to count ballots that uh, that shouldn't be counted for Trump. That's what uh, uh, that's what's being suggested, although there's not a lot of evidence to that effect. Uh, there have been questions about uh, the Georgia administration of the election, not just by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who I was referencing, but also uh, by the state government, including Republican Governor Brian Kemp generally. Listen to this uh, riff by Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood is the famed attorney who represented both Richard Jewell, in his case against the federal government, as well as Nick Sandman, the Covington Catholic school kid, uh, against uh, in his cases uh, for defamation against CNN and other media outlets. He was recently on a program called The John Frederick Show, which is on uh, out of Virginia, And he talked about the lawsuit that he has filed in the state of Georgia with respect to the election, uh, specifically as it pertains to an agreement that Raffensperger, the Georgia secretary of state, reached with Stacey Abrams and her organization back in March as it pertains to absentee ballot voting that he suggests raises the same constitutional issues as the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's actions to extend the absentee ballot collection period by three days in that state. Listen. The lawsuit I filed was against uh, the Secretary of State and other uh, appropriate defendants, and it stems out of a March 2020 consent settlement that the Secretary of State entered into with, uh, in litigation with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party was represented by Perkins Coie. You might also call Perkins Coie the Hillary Clinton law firm. But that consent agreement made substantive changes in the absentee voting rules. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Only the state legislature is permitted to make a change in a federal election conducted in the state. That's been strongly 
suggested and will be upheld eventually by Judge Justice Alito in Pennsylvania, even recently by a judge in California where they tried the same thing with the governor. So they changed the rules under the guise of COVID to try to increase the ability of people to vote by mail. And as a result, you've got fraud uh, of a massive amount through the mail votes, and you've also got fraud in your computer voting machines. Okay. It's not the first time they've done this. What happened this time is Trump won by such a large margin that they had to go out and get these mail votes in the middle of the night to try to carry some of the key states. Mm-hmm. But in Georgia, the election is void and unlawful. The election is void and unlawful. Lynn Wood suggesting that all of the elections except for the presidential, the office of president, will need to be rerun, much like a North Carolina congressional race was ordered rerun last cycle because of this fraud, he alleges. And uh, as it pertains to Georgia's uh, 16 electoral votes, that will have to come down to the electors that are certified to vote on December 14th. Uh, so it sounds like a remote possibility to me, but um, this uh, has a long way to go, and perhaps we'll get much wilder and willier before we get to December 14th. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, and author of Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Conrad Black, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you. How do you? Uh, how are you taking in? Um, you know all of the litigation that is uh, circ- that is circulating in in the six relevant states, and including uh, states where there's a recount, Georgia now, and where there's going to be one, Wisconsin shortly. Well, look, I, I, I start from the premise that it is very odd, very very odd, that in all of the country. The only places where there are problems are in a few uh, generally democratically governed, that's to say by the Democratic Party, governed states that are known to be swing states and, and close races coming, you know, coming right up the election. So there are you know, New York and California, Illinois, Ohio, Texas, uh, mixed between Democratic and Republican states, big states. Uh, they they cast and counted 50 million or more votes on election day, no problem at all. Uh, I mean, there may be an individual uh, dispute about a few votes, but basically there's no problem in those states. But in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Arizona, Nevada, known to be likely very close races, in a number of those states, they inexplicably stopped counting on election night and uh, with with uh, everyone asleep or away, uh, miraculously, these drops of huge numbers of ballots arrived in the middle of the night <clears throat> and, and they swung from leaning strongly to Trump to leaning to Biden. Now, it's just very odd. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but when in Wisconsin you get an 89% turnout in Milwaukee, they've never had that before, and it's just very, very odd. So, I, I, you know, I, my own view is I think there's obviously some skullduggery going on, and it's been well-organized and well-planned, and uh, this sort of uh, use of uh, unsolicited mass ballot mailing 
<clears throat> was proposed in H.R. 1, the first bill of the new House session after the Democrats regained their majority in the beginning of last year. Uh, and, and they couldn't get much of it through, but with the COVID crisis, they did get a lot of it through. And I think that's essentially what's happening. And then the defensive posture being taken is uh, to repeat this mantra that the Republicans have no evidence of serious fraud. You can only get the evidence when you get the ballots. That's why nobody has the evidence. <laughs> and um, even a lot of Trump supporters who, who were with him in policy terms, but not particularly attracted uh, to him as a as a person. Uh, even he, um, uh, even they uh, sort of got on board with, with the idea that it's time for the chaos to end and Trump to be a gentleman and leave. Uh, and uh, the real question, I'm sorry to be so lengthy here, but it's complicated. The real yes, question yes. is, can the president's counsel, and I have great confidence in Sidney Powell and, and uh, Joe DiGenova, uh, I know them and they're, they're outstanding, and, and they're amongst the leaders of the president's team, and they say they can get there, and they're challenging 782,000 um, uh, ballots in Pennsylvania. If they can get a real attack on, on the real problem to a high court fast enough, I think they'll win. But they're facing dilatory procedures and this sort of blank, gelatinous mountain of comment that the president should just be a good sport. There are close elections sometimes, and somebody has to win, and you can't win them all. All of that is true, but, but it doesn't mean that you can't challenge what looks like fraud. It was a very close election four years ago, but no one was claiming it was a fraud. Uh, even in 2020, when, when it went to 537 votes and the Supreme Court stopped the count in Florida and George W. Bush won the election, it was a debate about what constituted a vote, uh, you, you know, the state of the, of the ballot after it had been cast, you know, hanging chads, that kind of thing. Yeah. It wasn't Supreme claimed Court to be decision. a ballot-stopping operation. Yeah. I mean, here you have an allegation of massive fraud, prima facie evidence that such a thing might have happened, and an effort to close it off by dismissing all of these claims as Mickey Mouse uh, arguments about you know, 10 people losing their votes or 100 people losing their votes or something. That isn't what it is. We're talking about taking tens of thousands of fake ballots and stuffing them in in dead of night and, and blending them in with real ballots. And, and that is a terribly serious business. I mean, if the United States can have a presidential election stolen like that, uh, the whole country should look in the mirror and see if they really think they're a democracy. Mm. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to continue this conversation and focus a little bit on the media, too, and how the media landscape may change coming out of the coverage, both of the election itself as well as the post-election uh, litigation and the rest. Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords and author of the book Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. We'll be right back with more. You can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, author of the book Donald J. Trump, a president like no other. Before the break, we were talking about uh, some of the anomalies. And when you start stacking up all of the anomalies and uh, taking note that all of the statistical anomalies benefit Joe Biden, you do start to wonder if there may be something afoot just as a rational human being, either that or you're talking about somebody who effectively won the Powerball to have all of these anomalous occurrences redound to his benefit. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect is the arguments that are being made by the left to, as you're uh, arguing, Conrad Black, to sort of end the uh, election, even as Trump is pursuing his legal rights in courts of law. What happened to uh, the party of process when it came to, for example, the Mueller investigation? It will take the time it takes to get to the truth. And all we want is the truth going where the facts lead. Here, as everybody concedes that Trump is pursuing his legal rights, there's no interest in adding that layer of legitimacy by letting President Trump pursue his legal rights to their natural conclusion in courts of law and come what may. And that raises additional questions about the seriousness of the Democrats with respect to process and the rule of law, as well as uh, questions about what they may be fearful of. Uh, All of that is true, I'm afraid. And as I say, the burning question is, can the president's counsel, and as I say, I think they're awfully good, Sidney Powell and Joe DiGenova and his wife are are Victoria Tenser. They're extremely capable lawyers. And uh, and there's no doubt that with working with Giuliani and others, they're they're getting closer to uh, really serious issues. And and uh, but we're going to be thrown off the track by this fiasco in Georgia. I mean, this Secretary of State, I, you had Mr. Wood on earlier. Uh, his is a good case, but I gather from what he has said then and what I've read elsewhere that he doesn't think he's going to be able to shake up the presidential part of the vote. Right. But the the fact is. The Secretary of State of Georgia, Ransberger, caved to Stacey Abrams and uh, accepted a Democratic uh, legislative initiative, in effect, making it impossible to verify, to check the ID, the signatures, and so forth, allowing a freight train to drive through the rules. And, and uh, you know, if, if, if they can't retrieve Georgia, then it is going to be a real uphill battle. But, um, it, but it isn't over. I mean, they... they Democrats only won Wisconsin by 20,000 votes. So this fake 89% turnout in Milwaukee. The Republicans are within the margin to call for a recount, but a recount itself won't do it. It has to be an audit recanvas recount. And and uh, I would have thought, I mean, what on earth do I know? But I would have thought that there's nothing more fundamental in the legal framework of America than the election of the president and vice president. Well, the, the Supreme Court is not a trier of facts, it's a trier of law. If you can get enough facts adduced in the lower courts, you'll get a fair hearing in the Supreme Court. And and I would have thought that all of this is vulnerable in the Supreme Court if you can get it there with an adequate fact base. And I'm just not qualified to judge how fast they can move on that. But they are certainly swimming you know, upstream, but they've been doing it for four years. I mean, it's been a 95% media smear job on this president for four years. And he was outspent two to one in the election. And then finally, they threw this this uh, whole uh, ballot harvesting monstrosity upon him. And, and he's still fighting it. Well, I mean, and, and, I, yeah, and, and also, I mean, at the same time, they were still openly decrying a foreign interference in our election, worried about foreign interference in our election. Where has that gone? Where What happened to the foreign well, interference it's gone, our it, argument? It, 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 it's gone to the same place as Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, screaming at the Postmaster General that he was engaged right. 
right. in voter intimidation. Right. I mean, that's another canard of the Democrats that just went into the proverbial dumpster. I mean, Russian interference was bunk to begin with. I mean, it was inconsequential four years ago. And, and whatever it was, if anything, this year, it didn't amount to anything. But they've spent four years trying to terrorize the country. And, and it was only 10 days ago that I saw the third-ranking Democratic member in the House, Clyson, Clyburn, from uh, South, South Carolina, Bill. the one yeah. who... Yeah. Who, who retrieved Joe Biden from the ash heap after the New Hampshire primary and, and, and you know, dusted him off and set him up to win, announcing that he seriously believed that Trump was taking his orders from, from Putin. Putin. No, what, what, uh, what, what, I mean, better, where does it all end? What, what better misdirection play for domestic interference than to complain about foreign interference, right? Yeah. What's his name? Clayson? Jim Clyburn. I mean, he's a very important figure in the house, and he's not just some backbench guy from you know from nowhere. And and uh, it's terribly hard to operate a serious political system when you have people in highly responsible positions saying outrageous, totally irresponsible, false things. I wanted to uh, get your reaction to um, the water the media has taken on, and particularly since the election, really since Chris Wallace's moderation of the first presidential debate and probably reaching its fever pitch on election night, Fox News, and what do you think the future of, of Fox News is, as many, many Trump voters feel like Fox News was stilted for Biden in the same way that they expected the other networks to be? I think calling Arizona when they did was completely uh, unjustified. I mean, it, they're down to under 10,000 votes now. Well, it could have been Trump winning by now. They, that, in my opinion, was the fix was in there. I mean, they had no reason to do it, and they did it for esoteric motives. So I, I think the grievance against Fox there is justified. The early call of the election uh, by Fox, as well as one other network and AP, I don't think that was justified. Now, the full extent of their, oh, and their early call that the Democrats were going to gain seats in the House, of course, that's proved to be completely false. Right. They, the Democrats look like they're going to lose as many as 12 seats in the House and, and have a paper-thin lead in that, in that chamber. Uh, that may have been a legitimate miscalculation. But if you don't have the facts, you don't call it. I mean, no one is telling you to make a prediction if you're not confident of the prediction. And look, I understand the grievance. I'm not qualified to say if it was a series of mistakes, if there was some change of policy. I, I, that would require me to mind read Rick Murdoch, and I've known him a long time, uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't wish to do that. Well, uh, with respect to, you know, just your, your background as a publisher and a, and a media guy, I mean, what do you think the media landscape provides right now with, with how social media has become? I mean, not just social media, but uh, publishing platforms like WordPress deplatforming conservative blogs and MailChimp deplatforming conservative uh, organizations uh, from using their mail list service and so forth. You know, even in the digital age, it seems like the media opportunities for conservatives may be shrinking. And I wonder what you think uh, that provides, how this changes what, where the opportunities lie for conservative uh, leaning outlets. Well, I, I think you'll get conservative sites starting up. And I think that. Uh, Twitter will will regret what they've done. I mean, I don't know how fast Parler is going to advance, but there's no franchise in those things. The president himself just took his you know his Twitter followers and moved them to Parler. It would multiply the value of that company by ten. And it's not like the old newspaper business where you had prepaid subscriptions. You send your money in and you're going to receive the paper for a year, so you've got a vested interest in reading it and sticking with it, even if you buy another paper. Uh, here, you don't have to do anything. You just change your allegiance. It doesn't cost you a Right. And they, these people are, you've got two different issues here. The, the traditional media have behaved disgracefully. 
I mean, they published those phony polls. They were hysterical in their opposition to Trump. They invented a fraudulent argument against him every week. You were, you know, you you remember uh, just to mention a couple for your listeners. You mean you remember the anonymous person published in the New York Times, the prominent White House official, <laughs> who turned out to be virtually a janitor in the Homeland Security Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of these things. I mean, uh, the, the inevitable Bob Woodward, who couldn't lie straight in bed, is the greatest myth maker in American history, bloodlessly assassinated Richard Nixon, is back at it saying that, that Trump was deliberately lying to the country about the coronavirus, this kind of thing. It just never stopped. He is Conrad Black, publisher, financier, member of the British House of Lords, and author of the book, Donald J. Trump, A President Like No Other. Conrad Black, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. They're always my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. As advertised, this is a first installment of an interview series that we're going to be doing on the Dan Prof Show focused on education reform, improving the quality of K-12 through education, extending opportunities for children who have not enjoyed the opportunities to attend schools that will prepare them for successful, independent lives. We begin uh, in a precarious time with the prospect of a Biden and Harris administration, particularly when you look at some of the personnel choices that are already being bandied about. Bill McGurn writing in the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, uh, the education of Joe Biden, that uh, among the finalists for a Biden administration education secretary are Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, Teacher Union One, and a former NEA, National Education Association president, Lily Eskelson Garcia, that's teacher union number two, talk about uh, a 180 from Education Secretary Betsy DeVos at present. Uh, As Betsy DeVos put it in a recent tweet, when unions win, teachers unions win, kids lose. That certainly seems to be the case that we're experiencing during the era of COVID, doesn't it? With teachers unions literally out protesting to keep schools closed, despite what we know from the scientific community about the relatively low risk, the relatively low transmission compared to any other sector of living on this mortal coil. And yet the teachers unions persist with school shutdown to the great detriment of K through 12 students, you know, the kids remember them. Let me give you an example of what I mean. This uh, out of the Dallas Morning News, Dallas students suffered, quote unquote, horrifying learning loss during the pandemic, according to new data. This from the deputy chief of academics, him commenting on the scores, deputy chief of academics for the Dallas Independent School District. Among other things, the uh, test results highlighted vast disparities between black and Latino students in the rest of the district. In math, for example, the percentages of black students reaching meets grade level projections range from 7.5% in fourth grade to 17.9% in eighth grade, compared with a range of 418 to 61.2% for white students in the district. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about factors of, of six and almost nine in some cases. Uh, Also, just generally speaking, in math, in nearly every elementary and middle school grade level where the state's tests are given, 
Students heading into school this fall, 2020, far less likely to show a good understanding of the subject material to be ready for the next grade, sometimes by as much as 30 percentage points. For example, 54% of Dallas fifth graders reached Meade's grade level threshold in math a year ago. 24% hit that mark this year. Reading scores lower in four of the six elementary and middle school grade levels as well. Derek Little, the deputy chief of academics. The thought around the district was that learning loss would be bad, but I think we're facing the reality that our students came back from school closures in a very different place than they were in last March. Right. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Denisha Merriweather, Director of Family Engagement at the American Federation for Children. She previously served as school choice and youth liaison to the Secretary of Education at the U.S. Department of Education. Denisha, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, I don't paint too bright a picture, but it's not too bright a picture with respect to what's happening at the K-12 through level in the public schools. As uh, per the Dallas experience, one of the questions that we've been asking here of parents is, rather than trying to break your kids back into the local public school district, Maybe it's time to rethink their K through 12 education the same way that um, a lot of families are rethinking college education, where their kids might go to college, how they might go to college at present. One of the silver linings of the pandemic is exactly what you touched on. Parents have now noticed some of the lacks in the traditional education system, and they're thinking about things differently. At the lowest level possible, parents are now asking questions. They're questioning the system, and they're trying to figure out, well, why can't my kid get a laptop from the school when they're paying all this money to go to their neighborhood public school? Why can't the teachers teach better lessons? Why does this seem more like daycare than actual education? And so a lot of parents are asking questions, and they are doing just what you said. They're rethinking education. You've seen this spark in pandemic pods, micro schools, and all of these innovative options. Parents are now searching for different types of of schooling environments for their kids. They're asking questions. And that's one of the best things that is really a gateway into the school choice conversation. I want to explore that a little bit more when we come back in terms of, you know, the forms that that exploration is taking and what some of the policy options are for parents and uh, some of the policy options parents should be pursuing, advocating for where those options are not present. More with Denisha Merriweather, Director of Family Engagement at the American Federation for Children, right after this. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Denisha Merriweather. She's the Director of Family Engagement at the American Federation for Children. She previously served as school choice and youth liaison to the Secretary of Education at the U.S. Department of Education. We're talking before the break about parents rethinking K-12 education because of the school shutdowns that uh, persist. It seems like one of the things that parents are watching is, well, there's some private schools, Catholic schools, non-denominational schools that are open. They're doing five-day-a-week in-person instruction while the public school in my neighborhood is not. So now it's how do I access resources I may not have to give my kid the same opportunity that the kids in that uh, private school are enjoying. That seems to be a real opportunity for private schools, both religious and secular, Denisha. 
Yeah. No, that's the typical conversation that parents are having now. They're questioning the system. They're saying, wait, there's this school over here that's opening. There are these online resources, yet the traditional school that my kid has been going to, they can't get virtual school up and running. They don't want us back inside the buildings. We're paying all this money. We're paying administrators. We're paying teachers. We're paying janitors. We're paying all of these staff members to help manage kids in the traditional system. But it just hasn't worked. And parents are asking these questions. They're looking outside of the box. That's one of the silver linings that happened during this pandemic in regards for school choice, because now people are beginning to understand what school choice is, and they're beginning to see the inequities within our education system. You know, we've traditionally waved the banner and said, low-income students, students with special needs, they deserve additional options. They don't deserve to be relegated to schools that don't fit their needs. But now, all across America, all people from all races, all income levels are seeing that there are inequities within our traditional systems in all students deserve better. And so then it becomes sort of a state-by-state proposition. Some states and cities within those states have robust school choice programs. I think of Florida, I think of Arizona, I think of Indiana, and other states not so much. Other states, the unions have a bit of a stranglehold on the introduction of competition, meaning they blockade it. And so how do you see that playing out? Certainly places in Florida, Arizona, they're more likely to be open as well. So maybe that's not changing the landscape as much, but maybe you have people literally moving to states that have these opportunities mm-hmm. away from states that don't like people are moving away from you know density they don't want to be in urban centers they don't want to be in urban centers where those kids don't have access to in-person instruction in Texas, you had a program that actually just passed maybe a couple weeks ago. In light of the pandemic, the governor used his funds given to him by Congress in light of COVID and created a $3 million scholarship program for students with special needs. And that's remarkable. That's the kind of stuff that we want to see happen in every state. We want all states to act just like Texas and use something that has disrupted our lives in America for something better to benefit students. And he did that. And I think that that's one of the things that one of the policy items that many governors, it's happened in Oklahoma, there was a scholarship passed to help students in light of COVID. And so those are the type of mechanisms that have sparked due to the devastation of, of COVID. Uh, how uh, worried are you about uh, the continuation of the D.C. scholarship program, since that's predicated on congressional authorization, if we have a Biden-Harris administration? And, and even though even with just a narrowly uh, Democrat-controlled House, uh, that may make some of those Democrats a little bit less inclined to mess with those parents in D.C. who have kids benefiting from those scholarships. That's a very good question, and it's not impossible to view that threat is very much apparent because during the Obama administration, he proposed to eliminate the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, and it took parents and advocates to really fight against that um, to continue it and to have it be um, reinstated and funded. So it's not impossible to think that under this Biden administration that there's going to be a major threat, not only to the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship, but to all scholarship programs nationwide in each state. You know, we so we're gonna, we're, who work we're, in education. Uh, yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. to, sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, but um, so we're going to need the Miss Virginias around the country to step exactly. up. 
Exactly. And 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 mm-hmm. and here's the the DC thing is so important. The DC example because it's this is not a Republican Democrat thing. It's not a conservative liberal thing. This is about uh, parents and families and their kids and access to quality education in DC, which is you know ninety eight percent Democrat, is the prime example of that. Exactly. We had the most friendly school choice administration by far that's ever existed. Um, And that maybe will ever exist again. So many people in the education space fought against one another and couldn't agree because of the Trump factor. You know, everyone was afraid to align themselves with the administration, but this is the most friendly administration that we've ever had, probably will ever have, who fought for this issue. Secretary DeVos, who I worked for at the U.S. Department of Education, championed school choice in every grant program and every piece of paper communications tool that could have ever been produced by the Department of Education. We need that same energy um, right now, probably even more during the Biden administration, because we just won't have that support at the federal level anymore. The we good, won't have it. Yeah. The good news, though, is that, as uh, people know, K-12 through education is mainly a state and local affair. So the federal government can be particularly helpful, as it was with uh, Secretary DeVos in advancing school choice. But there's only so much it can do to really harm uh, school choice programs that are up and running or are advancing at the state and local level? Well, yes and no. The bully pulpit is tremendously powerful. And so if a congressman comes out and says, you know, no, this program is not beneficial and they put that weight on it, we've had numerous Supreme Court cases come before um, the, the U.S. Supreme Court about school choice. And so we have a friendly, you know, Supreme Court, but their bully pulpit definitely weighs a lot. And it really changes the the public's view of this issue. And that was the most powerful thing this administration had done was to reframe the thinking around school choice to make people, to help people understand that this is something that, that impacts you too, and you can benefit from this. Um, so their voice definitely carries a lot of weight. And if they consistently say that, you know, it's funneling money away from the public schools, or these are just a bunch of rich people who are trying to profit off of low-income black kids, that matters and that sways the public opinion. Right. And so, again, the the families that are the beneficiaries are going to need to be heard from, and they definitely will be on this show. She is Denisha Merriweather, Director of Family Engagement at the American Federation for Children, previously served as the School Choice and Youth Liaison to Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of education. Denisha, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Let's uh, continue our conversation that uh, we started with uh, Denisha Merriweather about, uh, in part, the prospect of a Randy Weingarten, head of the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, union thug, to be the education secretary and what that would mean for education policy emanating from the federal level in the tank for the unions, obviously. To some of the other names being bandied about some of the other posts, as indicated, and perhaps the policy direction, as indicated by some of the individuals named to Biden's transition for particular areas. For example, Mirsa 
Baradarin is a professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. She is part of the Department of Treasury Agency review team, trying to decide between uh, you know somebody from Wall Street and Elizabeth Warren. Baradaran is an outspoken advocate of reparations for black Americans, both as a means of correcting white supremacy and closing the racial gap. Huh. Still trying to find out where Reparation H is at this juncture on her uh, promotion of reparations. But uh, that's interesting. Certainly, perhaps you have an advocate at Treasury for such a position. I'm not saying that that's who ultimately will be selected, but. In terms of whether or not uh, the centrist Biden, as he was advertised, will be uh, including and really bringing together centrist center left to center right for a centrist administration, as opposed to what the Biden administration really promised to be, which is former Obama staffers implementing Bolshevik Bernie Sanders policies. Uh, So far, based on the personnel choices and personnel as policy, it would be the Obama staffers implementing Bernie Sanders policies, wouldn't it? Reparations program could take many forms from simple cash payments or baby bonds to more complex schemes such as subsidized college tuition to the extent it isn't free. Basic income, housing vouchers or subsidized mortgage credit, said the good professor in a book called The Color of Money that she wrote in 2017. Additionally, we have uh, Richard Stengel appointed to Biden's transition team for the media. Uh, He is the team lead for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, the U.S. government media empire that includes Voice of America, Middle East Broadcasting Network, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. He's an Obama administration alumnus, to my point, who wrote last year in the Washington Post, Amazon Post, sorry, that uh, we got a problem in this country. You know what the problem is? First Amendment, freedom of speech. As a government official traveling around the world championing the virtues of free speech, I came to see how our First Amendment standard is an outlier. Most people would say that's a positive thing. Not Mr. Stengel. All speech is not equal. And where truth cannot drive out lies, we must add new guardrails. The First Amendment doesn't protect false speech about a virus or false speech that endangers the health of your users. Actually, it does. As uh, Jonathan Turley from George Washington University School of Law wrote, it would be difficult to select a more anti-free speech figure to address government media policy. One has to assume that Biden will continue the onslaught against this core freedom as president writes Turley about Stengel and thus about Biden. Obama staffers implementing Comrade Bernie policies. That's what you're getting so far, as anticipated, taking the mask off the media narrative of a centrist Biden administration. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Illinois Governor Jelly Belly Pritzker doesn't know where he'll be for Thanksgiving, but he knows all the fixins will be there for him when he arrives, wherever that may be. Gavin Newsom doesn't know what's going to happen to K through 12 education in California quite yet. Also, his children return to in-person learning uh, under a phased-in approach at private schools where his four children attend, even though most of the schools in Sacramento County, where he lives, are shut down as we see teachers' unions continuing to drive 
the train with respect to lockdown policies for schools. And now Democrat socialist governors driving lockdown policies in the wake of case spikes around the country. The right policy supported by the science and the data. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Kevin Pham. Again, he is a medical doctor, contributor to The Daily Signal, former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me back. This is a study from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York, in cooperation with the Naval Medical Research Center. 1,843 Marine volunteers, U.S. Marines, volunteer to be quarantined and follow more stringent procedures with more stringent oversight than the most authoritarian governor or mayor in this country could even imagine. And the results, comparing the experimental group with the control group, which was not, of course, subject to the lockdown policies, the uh, control group of Marines actually saw fewer infections than their experimental group colleagues. The difference wasn't large, but still a difference. Uh, So one could argue that perhaps it was the overuse of masks, which were continually used in the experimental group, that contributed to uh, slightly increased transmission because of, you know, not wearing the masks properly and they're not being cleaned properly and so on and so forth. But the upshot is strict lockdown mandates, including continuous mask use and oversight of all of the above, accomplish nothing in this study that has yet to be highlighted, even though it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. How do you react? Yeah, I think that a lot of the government impositions on us during all this time, which would be mirrored by these Marines being strictly monitored, a lot of these impositions, they don't have a larger impact on us than our own personal behaviors. So the control group, they were able to go out in their daily lives as normal. And they were probably they were probably not just going out to parties, drinking beers with um, random strangers and stuff like that. But they were probably assessing the risk and then trying to trying to mitigate it on their own. Um, I mean, I'd have to take a look at the results, look at the statistical differences and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But from what it sounds like to me is that it's, it's going to be the individual's personal behavior that's going to have the greatest impact on whether a transmission occurs or not. Uh, help us uh, not overinterpret the comments from Joe Biden yesterday about mask wearing when he said this. President's now existing remaining uh, advisor on COVID is saying that uh, the, they should resist. What the hell's the matter with these guys? What is the matter with them? Resist. You know, every major individual of any consequence in the health field is saying we can save we can save 100,000 lives just between now and January 21st by wearing these masks. Is that right? That- OK, so no, the the vice president has been extremely, extremely unhelpful during all of this. Uh, you know, he, I remember there was he put out this, this big viral tweet that said, don't make masks political. Uh, Donald Trump makes mass political. And that, that, <laughs> the irony was lost on him. Uh, yeah. Oh, many things are lost on that guy. But no, this is this is this is incorrect on every single level. First off, you know, masks are not a panacea. Masks will not save us from this. Uh, there was a, a recent YouGov poll that that found that there is 95 percent, 95 percent of people are wearing masks. Uh, some, most, or all of the time, which which means that there's 95% at least acceptance of wearing masks. And even so, we're seeing a skyrocketing number of cases. So masks aren't going to prevent the increased case because people are already wearing them. Uh, that's that's the one thing. The other thing is that this this um, hundred thousand of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives that will be saved from wearing masks. That's that's not true because of what I had just said, but also because 
those are based on uh, erroneous numbers. Those are based on an assumption of mask wearing that was um, taken from early in the pandemic, I think March or some, March or April, where mask usage was very low um, nationally and it was it was not very high even in New York and Seattle. So, um, so if there was a national mask mandate and if there was 100% compliance with this mask mandate, which there will not be, then you're not going to save 100,000 people because people are already wearing masks and we're seeing that it's not having the, the effect that they claim that it does. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the vaccines uh, that are in process, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna. Of course, uh, the market reacting yesterday to the good news about the uh, apparent efficacy of the Moderna vaccine that's still in trial. I talked to Dr. Henry Miller, who is the founder of the uh, FDA's Office of Biotechnology and uh, now at the Pacific Research Institute. One of the points that he made about Pfizer that I hadn't heard anywhere else, this is what you'd expect from experts in the field, actual value-added information. That's just shocking to me because we're so rarely getting it uh, from the television doctors. But uh, Dr. Miller said there's a problem with the Pfizer vaccine, potentially. Not that it's not uh, 90 percent effective, and that's great. The problem is the uh, vaccine needs to be stored at at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you're going to have a logistical issue in terms of quick and mass distribution uh, with with that uh, temperature requirement for storage. And that's something to be considered. So, you know, there's one thing to say we have a vaccine and uh, the FDA approves it. But then you still have to stand up all of the, the, the transportation infrastructure to transport. You know, where we're talking about millions and millions of doses, whether it's the Pfizer product or the Moderna product or some combination of the two. And I don't know the particular uh, qualities of the Moderna vaccine, if there's a, a, something similar in terms of how it needs to be transported. But that's a real like. Uh, maybe wonky, but material issue in mass distribution that informs how quickly mass distribution could happen, which informs the sort of public policies we should be accepting when it comes to things like locking down. Yeah, certainly. And the, the Moderna vaccine does not require as cold of storage. It requires a more, <clears throat> excuse me, it requires a more normal um, temperature, which is a normal uh, refrigerator. Um, but on that front, the uh, Pfizer has been purchasing um, special refrigerator units for these, and they're running a um, a pilot distribution program to test out their uh, distribution infrastructure before before they actually run, roll out the entire program. That's good. So hopefully, yeah. So hopefully, uh, they'll have everything ironed out by the time an approval comes down the line, or at least an authorization. Hopefully, it'll roll out relatively smoothly. There's there's going to be hiccups. This is this is a really unprecedented move trying to vaccinate a lot of people. But this is a good thing that we're going to have two different vaccines. One of the bigger differences is that Pfizer is doing a lot of the contracting on its own, whereas Moderna is uh, is primary, primarily relying on the government contracts, the uh, McKesson Logistical Distribution Network. And so that might affect where, um, where the majority, majority of these uh, vaccines go. Uh, well, well ide- <clears throat> ideally, uh, and I don't know, you tell me if this is underway, but ideally, right, I, I, my understanding is Pfizer did not take Operation Warp Speed money. And of course, as you were just suggesting, Moderna did. Um, but I wonder if there'll be some synchronization then, too, if there's a government priorities that may slightly differ from uh, the, the Pfizer priorities and that they'll use, uh, you know, sort of operate uh, collaboratively to get uh, as wide a distribution as possible. Uh, I believe so. And, and just a quick uh, nuance to that, a little caveat. Pfizer did take warp speed money. They just didn't oh, they take did. it for research and uh, they didn't take it for research and development, but they did. Um, they did contract with the U.S. government for 100 million doses. Uh, the Trump right, administration right. just pre-purchased those to yeah. Right, right. So, so there's that. But yeah, no. Um, we we do expect that uh, that there's going to be some some complementarianism here with how these vaccines are rolled out, uh, just because. Um, 
you know, there is going to be the more centralized logistics train. And then they're also going to be they're also going to be distributed along um, more retail pathways. So the the bulk of it will first go to people who are at high priority for vaccines. But um, as time goes on, they're they're, they're going to ramp up more um, more retail distribution of this vaccine, like like flu vaccines. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to just get, get a sense of uh, you know the dark winter that Joe Biden is describing and other Western European nations are describing too. Uh, thus, the basis for the lockdown policies. But even in Sweden, uh, the prime minister there, who I, I believe was the guy from the Muppet Show, uh, was a chef. I can't remember, but he uh, uh, he announced uh, public events of more than eight people are now prohibited. Now schools are still staying open there. And uh, and other and restaurants are staying open. You can still indoor dine, no, no more than eight people and so on and so forth. But to uh, restrict uh, public events back down to eight people from I think they were at 300. That is still a, a restriction and a move. So what does that say about where we are with the spread? I would I would say that that's probably the the number restriction. I've always found to be a rather dumb restriction because the, the virus doesn't care how many people are in a space. The virus really cares about the distance between persons in a space. So if you have eight people in a convention hall, then I really am not really concerned about transmission there. Uh, as, as has always been the case, the, the, what we really should have been doing is focusing A, on risks, and B, on the vir- virological reality of transmission. Uh, the, the sort of metrics, the parameters that we've set up in different states, uh, a lot of them are just untargeted, and they're, they're very, they're, frankly, they're dumb. He is Dr. Kevin Pham, medical doctor, contributor to The Daily Signal and former graduate fellow in health policy at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Kevin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Switching from our discussion with Dr. Kevin Pham about, uh, among other things, Biden's pronouncements yesterday on COVID-related matters to uh, his running mate, Kamala Harris's pronouncements yesterday on economic matters related to COVID, like the unemployment rate. Take a listen. And we all know that this pandemic and this recession have hit communities of color particularly hard. Black Americans and Latinos are three times as likely to contract COVID as others and more likely to die. Native Americans are more than four times as likely to be hospitalized as others. And last month, the unemployment rate for black Americans was almost twice the rate of others. Uh, You know, this has been uh, throughout the campaign and it persists and it's just so unnerving. The unemployment rate among black Americans is twice that of others. Right. Why is that? Because of the lockdown policies I support. I support the policy, but I don't support or accept the consequences, not much less the responsibility for said consequences, not to mention the uh, disparate uh, health outcomes for various cohorts within the larger population speak to the failure of big government gambits for generations. Doesn't it doesn't that data. For more on this and what uh, a Biden-Harris administration may have planned to uh, bring the 
economy to even more of a grinding halt. We're pleased to be joined again by Brad Palumbo, opinion editor at FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast. Brad, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, So let's start with Kamala Harris and just this uh, rhetorical artifice that both of them are using, the entire Democrat Socialist Party is using. Uh, This uh, recession, these unemployment figures, Uh, As a result of policies I support and continue to support well after President Trump and Republicans supported them. Right. Well, it it is head scratching because uh, what she's saying is technically true. I mean, it is true that the African-American unemployment rate is higher right now. But African-Americans disproportionately live in liberal cities in blue states. And so do others. So so and, and what we've seen is a consistent and clear statistical trend that red states have lower unemployment rates and better economies right now because they didn't go as full draconian and shut down the entire economy like lots of these blue states did. So they're using the language of social justice here to mask over a policy that and, and a discrepancy that they themselves have helped create and contribute to. And it's not just the lockdowns. A lot of the other things that Biden and Harris support, like a $15 minimum wage. Well, you know, study, every study under the sun shows that that would disproportionately put minority workers uh, out of work and out of a job. So well, and, and, and backing and, up all this talk and, and low income workers, clearly, uh, I, you know, by definition, because of that wage level, uh, you're going to marginalize them, which is also the story of COVID is that most of the unemployment comes from, you know, your a median wage earner of around $40,000. So the people that are prattling on about how much they care about the working man and working women are the one that are marginalized, well, the ones marginalizing said working man and working woman. Yeah, they are, because what it is is it's the cushy white-collar jobs that can be done from home easily. And I look, I don't begrudge them that. That's great. But the problem is that they're uh, overlooking the fact that the big restrictions that every journalist uh, in liberal media is lobbying for uh, well, they don't affect them, do they? Because journalism is remote, and I'm a journalist, and I can work from remote easily. And so it is the working class that is hit hardest by COVID lockdowns. Other studies show that it's actually minority-owned businesses because they are disproportionately working class and in, in the cities are more likely to close than white-owned businesses uh, because of the COVID lockdowns. So uh, once again, I mean, the social justice rhetoric it's just aggravating because these people either don't mean what they say or they think we're too stupid to figure out that their actions don't line up with their words. Uh, they uh, met with uh, corporate titans yesterday and uh, uh, Joe Biden said, you know, he made sure that they all knew that he's a union man and so on and so forth. Uh, but what is uh, likely to happen uh, in reaction to some of the policies they've proposed from setting wages by executive fiat to the public option with respect to health insurance, the backdoor takeover of health insurance, as uh, as many people have rightly argued, something that's been, uh, you know, underway for the past 30 years on the left uh, and uh, other big government gambits, including the uh, free college and uh, debt forgiveness. Yeah, it's always been kind of a false narrative that the Democrat Party is the one advancing the working class interests, but it's become more painfully clear recently than ever before. Because there's a big difference between the interests of unions and the interests of workers. And Democrats do take tons of union money and listen to what that leadership wants. But those are often people seeking 
uh, regulations and, and subsidies and special carve-outs and big government programs to protect their own, not to help workers overall and laborers overall. Uh, so Joe Biden, you can expect to see a lot more of that. I mean, if it tells you anything, I have a new analysis out today on T.org uh, for the Foundation for Economic Education that shows Nancy Pelosi earmarked $350 million in her latest COVID stimulus bill for the 50 richest zip codes in America. And they're all liberal cities uh, like, Bever- like uh, Malibu in California, like Wesley in uh, Massachusetts. So don't tell me with a straight face that these people are fighting for the working class. Well, and, and meanwhile, I mean, just to go through some of these categories, you were just describing what happens to a lower wage workers with an artificial hike in the minimum wage. So you marginalize their job prospects. Number two, if you eliminate the private health insurance market, you reduce the quality of health insurance available and health care correspondingly for those same lower to middle income workers. And then number three, by debt forgiveness and free college. Well, that sounds all hunky dory. But what you're actually perpetuating is the system of college for all that leaves 80 percent of those who play that game out in the cold, either not uh, graduating, uh, dropping out or graduating, but being underemployed. It's saddled with with debt and, you know, above one hundred twenty five thousand dollars if you're still paying full freight and the government still continuing to subsidize ever escalating tuitions. So every step of the way, they speak to a constituency they say they're representing that they're actually sticking it to. Right. Especially the last one you mentioned, the student debt cancellation. Uh, that is a bailout. That is a bailout for wealthy and well-educated sub- segment of society. People forget this, but only one in three uh, American adults over age 25 has a college degree. And those people are disproportionately earning a lot more money than the rest of the American citizenry, but everybody pays taxes. So even liberal economists and liberal sources will point to a student debt bailout. Don't call it forgiveness. They call it forgiveness. There's no such thing as that. Somebody's got to pick up the tab, and it's the taxpayer. But even liberal analysts say it is a highly regressive policy. It is a handout to a richer, more educated, more well-off segment of society. That's not progressive. That's elites using the government to reap benefits on their their voters that vote for them, well-educated, liberal whites. No, it's an excellent point. And and to to that point, Jason Furman— Former Harvard economist, former chief economist for President Obama, said the uh, the bailout, the ten thousand dollars worth of student loan forgiveness, bad idea for the very reasons you just outlined. Very interesting. Brad Palumbo, opinion editor at the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, host of the Breaking Boundaries podcast. Brad, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. It's been you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Shh, don't tell the political press corps, particularly inside the Beltway, but there are at least 14 new pro-life Republican women who were elected to the House of Representatives on November 3rd. Some were Republican hold seats. Uh, others were pickup seats like Maria Elvira Salazar, who unseated Donna Shalala in Florida, down Miami way. 
14 new pro-life Republican women elected to the House as part of the surprisingly good Republican performance, given the expectations and the blue wave that was supposedly cresting on November 3rd. That never, never quite occurred, did it? Mark Penn writing in The Wall Street Journal, Mark Penn, former pollster for Hillary Clinton, uh, now managing director of a polling operation, the Hill uh, Harris Poll, uh, I should say. Uh, he writes about America's shockingly moderate electorate. Despite billions of dollars spent on persuasion, massive increases in turnout, a media with an agenda and racial unrest, the changes in American voting patterns were minuscule. Uh, he uh, points to exit polling. 24 percent of voters identify as liberal. 38 percent say they're conservative. This is according to CNN exit polls. Another 38 percent say they're moderate. Despite the widespread publicity given the left since 2014, the percentage of self-identified liberals declined two points while the share of conservatives has actually increased by three. In point of fact, if you look at uh, more of the exit polling, you start to break it out a bit. There are some surprising numbers, but uh, surprising in their consistency or their, you know, their relative stability. Trump's margin of victory among white women actually increased from 11 to 13 points for all the talk about uh, how repellent he was to women. And his advantage among white men narrowed from 30 to 23. Ultimately, Biden won more of the moderates. And if he is uh, ultimately the victor, this is where Mark Penn suggests the race was won. Biden expanded the Democrat lead among moderates to 30 points from 12 in 2016, the single most significant move. Moderate men swung the race to Mr. Biden. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend, best-selling author Lionel Shriver. She's also a contributor to The Spectator and uh, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was made into a very good movie. More recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. Lionel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. You uh, sort of came to the same conclusion in your piece in The Spectator as Mark Penn in The Journal, both uh, thinking about the American electorate as well as the British electorate over the last couple of election cycles. Yes, it was interesting for me to listen to you detail those statistics because they so perfectly gel with my instinctive interpretation of the electoral results. The left has no mandate. It seemed to me that there would be a substantial number of voters who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Trump the man, but who shared some of his policy goals and were voting for Biden reluctantly. And as far as I was concerned, the big story of the election was most certainly not that Biden won, but that he won so narrowly. You know, if it, something like 80,000 votes could have gone a different way and, and he'd have a second term. And that's astonishing. Whatever you think of him, he's been utterly demonized in the mainstream media for four solid years. And you would expect that to have some kind of effect. I mean, not just the the day to day political press corps, but sort of through all of the institutions that are controlled by the left. I think there are more documentaries attacking President Trump than there are documentaries extolling the the virtues of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just to give you, you know, one other sector. So, you know, so on every front, it was Trump, bad man, Trump, white supremacist. And yet uh, here Trump is with the second most votes in American presidential political history. Well, the other thing that stood out for me in those statistics was that the number of people who are willing to label themselves as liberal actually went down. Yeah. And I think that the nature of the far left is losing them friends. I think they are mostly preaching to each other and competing with each other about who can be more extreme, more radical, more obsessed with what they're obsessed with, you know, race and gender identity and, you know, the whole list. They're leaving the country behind. 
And I think that it's easy to stake the direction of the country because the left controls so much of the media. And also, you know, extremes make more noise. And so they get more attention. You know, I don't want to be too hackneyed and Nixonian, but there is a silent majority. They don't get much attention because they're not as interesting. Even as stories, they're not as interesting. You know, oh, most of most of the United States electorate is moderately di- disposed and um, reasonably patriotic. I mean, that's just, that's not a story. It's not interesting. But that is the story. That is the truth. But uh, the question is, and when we come back, I want to explore this with you. The question is, even though the m- margin of, of, of defeat potentially was narrowed, more narrow than expected, does that uh, necessarily mean that... Um, the, uh, the, the threat of the radical left has been diminished in any meaningful way. We'll explore that question with Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and most recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. We'll be back with more. Right the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and most recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space, talking about the election results and the surprisingly strong performance in, in real ways among congressional Republicans and even uh, the President of the United States, too, given some of the polling that had him you know, losing at least 40 states and it being an electoral landslide. Obviously, the election is still being litigated as we talk on this Tuesday, November 17th, so... Um, it was much closer than many anticipated, but uh, Lionel, and, and this goes to the same thing in the UK with the populist uprising that led to Brexit. Uh, you know, that's a little bit different because, of course, Boris Johnson, the conservative, is in charge, and the conservatives are in charge there. But, but uh, here, one wonders: yes, it was a narrow defeat. Yes, there were gains by Republicans in the House, and and probably a hold in the Senate. But the bottom line is, you still have a Joe Biden uh, potentially as president of the United States who is beholden to the leftist element of his party. Some of the initial transition selections look like that's the direction he's going to go. Obama staffers implementing Bernie Sanders policies. And, you know, um, a defeat is a defeat. And whether or not the the mandate is is real among the majority of the population, the radical left will uh, take their uh, access to power wherever they can find it. I think that if the hard left makes a policy and power grab, they will lose next time around. They do not represent enough of the electorate. You know, I think uh, on something like immigration, always touchy. I don't know how enthusiastic the country is for a wholesale amnesty for people who have broken the law. And I know that that's, uh, that's on Biden's docket. If you look at his website, that's one of his key policy points. Right. And, you know, the rhetoric of the the left is flat out unappealing to mainstream America. It doesn't go down well with most people, understandably. If they happen to have been born white, to be told over and over again that they basically are intrinsically evil, they're guilty of original sin, and um, and they are, whether they like like it or not, white supremacists. You know, a term that used to mean something and apply to a very, like, microscopically small proportion of the population. 
and now it's any now it just means white person. It's just you know, and also just uh, denigrating the country and obsessing over its historical sins. Most people want to be proud of their country. They want to be clear-eyed about it. Um, there are not very many people who talk about how great it was to slaughter uh, Native Americans, etc. But uh, on balance, they want to regard their country, at least in the present, as a force for good. And just telling them that they should be ashamed all the time, it's, it's not good politics. Uh, I, I, you recently gave an interview to a friend of the show, Brendan O'Neill, over at Spiked Online about uh, masks and other COVID-19 related policies uh, with uh, the UK and another lockdown, many states uh, in American lockdowns as well. And I wonder if, you know, this is a real avenue of uh, divide and conquer for the left, uh, the uh, fraying, uh, the, the, the purposeful fraying of social fabric with the uh, dubious uh, evidence based uh, you know the the evidence for uh, being dubious for some of the lockdown policies being pursued. You know this is a way to really create friction among Americans where friction might not otherwise exist. Well, this uh, whole epidemic has been used as an excuse for social control. Now, in the olden days, uh, people on the left were not very big on social control. They believed in liberty. That's what liberal used to mean. Um, but. I'm afraid we've swapped places now, and the left is very big on, on social engineering and making you be good, legislating virtue. And this is an example of the fact that uh, apparently all of our civil liberties were provisional. We only get them if we're good, um, and they may be rescinded at a moment's notice. And I honestly think that the experience of being an American and feeling that you have various rights and freedoms uh, as a birthright is going to be permanently changed because apparently you don't. You know, apparently the government can tell you um, even that you may, you may no longer have the right to protest. You don't even have the right to protest against laws that tell you you don't have the right to protest. Right. 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 Yes. Uh, well, and, and, and it seems to me that you know, this is a contagion that those who seek dominion over the lives of others have recognized that if you create enough fear, I mean, and frankly, as founding fathers warned, I mean, Ben Franklin and others, if you create enough fear, then you have the opportunity to exert that much more control. So you're you're rewarded for fear mongering. And so you continue to pursue it in in uh, advance of the power you desire. Well, I think uh, that is another one of the switcheroos that we've seen in recent years is that um, fear used to be primarily a tool of the right. Um, I'm going to give my age away, but when I was growing up, um, we were constantly being threatened with communism, you know, and it was it was going to take over the United States, and you should you should be frightened. Right. Now fear is primarily a tool of the left. I mean, they are terrifying. I'm scared of them. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you see, you see their conduct, and uh, you know, at some point, you have to take them seriously that they are who they are behaving themselves and exposing themselves to be. Well, one of the things that's happened is that we no longer trust the public to act in its own interest. In previous epidemics, and there have been previous epidemics that killed even more people, uh, we trusted people, by and large, to decide how to protect themselves. 
And now it's no longer voluntary. Now it's a matter of the government. The government has to protect us. The government has to make us safe. So they, it's, you, know, you can't trust people to be sensible, to realize that they need to wash their hands. And, and if they're in very poor health, it would be a good idea to curtail their socializing and um, stay away from large groups of people. You know, the government no longer advises it orders, and we have now been we have now given government dominion over absolutely every aspect of our lives. Over here, it got so micromanaged that uh, Boris Johnson told told people that they could see one parent at a time, but not both parents together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't get more fiddly and niggling than that. And she is Lionel Shriver, contributor to The Spectator, best-selling author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, and most recently, The Motion of the Body Through Space. Lionel Shriver, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and building on our conversations this hour with both author Lionel Shriver and Brad Palumbo from the Foundation for Economic Education. Introduce you to one of the 14 pro-life newly elected women to the House of Representatives that we were referencing with uh, Lionel. Victoria Sparts, she's from Indiana's 5th, which is uh, suburban Indianapolis. Uh, But she's got an interesting story. She is a Ukrainian immigrant. So she has a particular perspective, uh, you know, these great perspectives you get from people who have actually lived under socialism, full-blown socialism, the the authoritarian rule of a dictator or tyrannical class. And um, this is what she had to say about that in appearance over the weekend on Fox & Friends. I grew up in socialistic country. It actually was, uh, you know, socialistic republic of Ukraine. I was saying, you know, in my 42 years, I grew up in socialism. I saw what happens when it runs out of money, and it's not pretty. And now I came to America 20 years ago with a suitcase after meeting my husband in the train in Europe, and he is a raisin-born Hoosier. You know, and now we're building socialism. I'm kind of going full circles. I can tell you what is going to be next. It's very sad for me to see that, and that made me as a mother of two daughters, it made me get involved and do something about it because that's not very good for our country. No, it clearly isn't. And that uh, accent is going to be wonderful at representing uh, the great state of Indiana. I love it. It also speaks to the fact that uh, suburban woman, immigrant, doesn't matter. It's uh, what's between the ears and it's an understanding of history and it's an understanding of quality of life and the threats to it. That's what she's speaking to. And And she has a first person account. It's that much more salient, I would say, and persuasive, I would hope, she continued. And let's look at any country that has socialism. Every country failed because this system is not sustainable. This system created a lot of destructions and misery. So we have to be smarter than that. You know, we, we're not going to change. There are only two systems. You have freedom and free enterprise, and you have system where government decides and political elites on top how we're going to live and what we're going to do. And, you know, if you think about it, we all, we're not equal. We all want different things. 
things. We want to have equal rights to pursue happiness, but we want all different things. So we have different, I, you know, we don't even want to go to travel to the same countries. If the government forces us to be equal, you have to suppress. So every socialistic system, it's about suppression. And we have to value our freedoms because we're the greatest republic that mm-hmm. ever existed. Yeah, if only uh, more uh, natural-born citizens would uh, agree with Ms. Sparks, particularly on the left, uh, and the important point that she makes, too, ultimately, right, government is force. Government is coercion. It is not uh, a, a please and a thank you. It is you shall. Government and big government is rooted in suppression and repression. And she's right. The choice is rather binary. It's moving towards a freer and more market-oriented America or moving to a more repressive command-control America. Two very different visions that are going to be potentially battled out between the White House and the Senate. And actually, a uh, closely, shockingly closely fought minority in the House that actually will be a material player if the numbers hold up, even if it's Biden and Harris in the White House. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Brown girl, brown girl, what do you feel? reads the teacher, that black girl magic will help us all heal, recite the children. Stanley Eugene Clark Public School in Brooklyn, New York, where a poetic rendition is dedicated to Senator Kamala Harris, who even uh, elementary school children know, waiting in the wings to become the vice president of the United States. Uh, The poem is an update of uh, Leslie Honoré's poem, Brown Girl, which she originally wrote in 2016 for her book of poetry. I'm sure you have it. So it's so interesting, the uh, dear leader serenades that are advanced by teachers in taxpayer-funded public school settings. Do you remember this one from elementary students at Burlington, New Jersey, at a Burlington, New Jersey public school for a dear leader Obama? Obama Hope t-shirts. The, the point should be that if any politician saw a teacher instructing children in that way, they should be offended and put an immediate end to it. That is Chinese communist quality propagandizing. Public schools happened with Obama. It happened with Hillary Clinton, even though she was never elected. And it's happening now with uh, Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh-huh. And so well, how do we get to this place? You're asking yourselves. Right. It just started under Trump, hardly. The implications from 
pre-K through post-secondary education as the walls close in on our individual rights. And I don't think that's overstating the case at all. Just ask Abigail Schreier. She's the author of a book on identitarian politics, specifically trans movement. Irreversible Damage is the name of her book, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. The uh, deputy director of trans studies at the ACLU has suggested that her book not be distributed. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and of course, all of the, uh, ac- the your fungible academics, universities across the country saying the same thing. ACLU is not going to defend unpopular opinions, even though that's basically their charter. Nope. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Eric, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be here, Dan. You had done an interesting study. Uh, you uh, wrote about academic freedom and cancel culture, and I think it's a little bit more serious than cancel culture. I mean, I think this is a purge. Uh, and by the way, it's not just uh, Twitter and Facebook. Conservative Treehouse, which is a popular conservative blog, just was deplatformed by WordPress, the website hosting platform. We've talked before about what MailChimp is doing to blacklist conservative groups. This is a deplatforming conservative groups from the digital space, uh, not just your Facebook or Twitter account. But to your study, uh, Eric, about um, the culture on campus, you looked at a study of 820 British academics run the largest and most representative sample of academic opinion and free expression to date. YouGov maintained a panel of about 500,000 respondents, including some 1,000 current or retired academic, uh, academics who completed the survey. And uh, what does that survey tell us? Yeah, well, basically, a, a couple of things jump out because often people will claim that, uh, you know, a lot of the criticism of universities isn't based in data or that the data is skewed. But this is pretty rigorous, as rigorous as you're going to get. And it, one of the key findings was that one in three academics would discriminate against a known supporter of the leave side, that is to leave the European Union. So if they knew somebody was a supporter of that position, which was voted uh, for by about 52 percent of the British population, they wouldn't hire an individual. So we've got some pretty good evidence of uh, political discrimination. And on a similar survey in the U.S., around 40% of academics polled said they wouldn't hire a known Trump supporter. So these are just pretty powerful indicators of the kind of discrimination that then leads to the loss of political diversity on campus in the professoriate. And then, of course, the knock-on effect of that is people then become very hesitant to express their political views to colleagues and that then affects also the subjects they study. So there's this real issue of self-censorship. So as distinct from direct censorship, there's also, I think, something much more pervasive, which is self-censorship because you fear the consequences if your political views become known. Well, then how, how do you change the culture on campus? Is it even possible? I mean, you have to have some sort of fifth column action with a plucky band of uh, insurgents, it would seem to me, in the Ivy League and elsewhere in order to uh, accomplish anything. Otherwise, they're just picking uh, professors off one at a time as needed or shutting those down, like you say, through a culture that encourages self-censorship. And and as they're continuing to do the hiring and vetting people for their political views, well, they're just shrinking the diversity of opinion on campus to the point where it'll be non-existent. Well, yeah, I mean, we've seen already, say, between uh, the 1990s and the 2010s, the share of conservatives in American academia is down to about 10% 
from about 20% and the share of on the left is about 60% compared to the center. So the centrists have actually gone down in the left. The conservatives were already pretty low. The centrists have gone down and the left has gone up to 60%. Now, in Britain, I mean, one of the things I argue for is that really only government action is going to be able to address this. I mean, we saw in the U.S. case with the Trump executive order on critical race theory or the Title IX removals. Those are kind of the kind of actions that would be needed. Here in Britain, what we recommended was we need to create something called the Director of Academic Freedom on the university's regulator here. So if somebody felt that their academic freedom was violated on campus, they could go around their universities and appeal directly to this individual and therefore get around the kind of kangaroo courts and the sort of disciplinary apparatus of the universities, which are heavily politically skewed in many cases. And just knowing that you'd have recourse to something other than your university. I think would give a lot of academics at least bravery to sort of begin to speak their mind a bit more freely, not worry about losing out on, well, not just being fired, but not being, for example, not being hired, not being given a grant. Professor Kaufman, per this piece that you wrote, who are the real shy Trumpers? Uh, 45% of Republicans with degrees compared to 23% of Democrats with college degrees said they feared their careers could be at risk because of their political views. And so, of course, more reluctant to share those political views. How, how do you think this impacted uh, polling? And, and is it your supposition that this explains in large measure why so many of the polls were so far off? Yeah, I mean, one of the thing one of the things you noticed in the exit poll was how off the polls were for college-educated whites. I mean, this is something we don't really hear much about. It's always about the white working class without degrees. Actually, if you really look at the polls, the biggest uh, polling errors, if you compare pre and post, uh, was with white college-educated uh, voters. And this is also the group that has the, the biggest majority saying that they're afraid that if their political views became known, um, their careers could be adversely affected or even be fired. That's coming from a Cato study recently. And so, uh, you know, we can we can look at this two ways. I mean, if you look at, you can either think of it in terms of people not wanting to answer the phone when a pollster calls up, maybe because they don't want to reveal their views. Or you can also think of it in terms of a sort of reaction against political correctness that that people are resentful um, of of media anything associated with media or or academia um, and and it's that reactance that that's coming out in terms of um, these polls so so Frank Luntz, for example, the Republican pollster reported that um, twice as ma- over twice as many Republicans said they didn't share their their voting intentions with friends. Uh, he reported a lot of resentment coming from people who were called up and asked to to provide their their um, their intention to vote. So you're getting more of this blowback from this segment of the population, which corresponds pretty closely with the group that feels that it is most uh, repressed in terms of what opinions it's allowed to express. Um, and so I think we need a lot more attention then on this kind of conservative white college group. Um, and they haven't had a lot of attention because the, the dominant narrative is, oh, well, they're all becoming liberal and democratic, and, and it's really only the, those uneducated people. Uh, but actually, that's not really the case. Uh, moreover, if you actually look at uh, survey data, um, what you see is education doesn't tell you a great deal about somebody's uh, whether they're going to vote for, for, say, Trump or for Biden. Uh, it's much more about attitudes like 
you know, attitudes to immigration, to political correctness, and so on. And that varies a hell of a lot within the population of university graduates. And so you really need to get into that to explain who was missed. Eric Hoffman, professor of politics, Birkbeck College, University of London, and author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Stephen Hayward over at uh, Powerline Blog asked the question, uh, are Democrats uh, ready to uh, give up on identitarian politics in the wake of... uh, Surprising performance by House Republicans, picking up uh, nine seats, maybe going to as many as 13, uh, including uh, our friend Burgess Owens in Utah, who's the winner. That's great. And um, the answer, at least from uh, Raphael Warnock, who is a Democrat uh, Senate candidate in Georgia, he's the uh, opponent of Kelly Loeffler in that runoff. The answer seems to be uh, no from Raphael Warnock and those that uh, still drive the Democrat Socialist Party into that runoff and perhaps into a Biden administration. America needs to repent for its worship of whiteness on on full display this season. How is it that you can insult everybody, call Muslims something other than children of God, call Mexicans murderers and rapists, insult the disabled, how is it you can insult everybody, but then one weekend somebody discovers in the recording that you insult those whose daughters and wives look like those who have been supporting you, and then all of a sudden we can't take it anymore. Repent for the worship of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Warnock does a heck of a Reverend Jeremiah Wright impersonation, doesn't he? The worship of whiteness, um, part of the lack of sway that I think identitarian politics has, even as it continues to advance, is it just doesn't stack up to what people see in the real world. The worship of whiteness, is that's what's going on? I wonder if people in uh, Appalachia think that their whiteness is being worshipped in this country. And that's the subject in part of Kevin Williamson's new book. Kevin Williamson is correspondent for National Review. His new book, Big White Ghetto, Dead Broke, Stone Cold Stupid, and High on Rage in the Dunk Woolly Wilds of the Ro- of the Real America. That's some title. And he uh, joins us now. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So uh, what about uh, Reverend Warnock and the, the worship of whiteness? turns out uh, that uh, being white in America doesn't necessarily uh, provide entrance into exclusive clubs. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. You know, what's interesting to me about that is that the Democratic primary gave people on the left a chance to nominate a much more radical candidate than they did. They could have had a socialist like Bernie Sanders. They could have had someone who was really deep into racial politics instead of someone like Joe Biden. who's pretty clumsy on that. But they ended up rallying behind Biden, and that was really led by African-American voters. My read from that is that there's just not nearly as much of a popular mandate for this kind of social radicalism as a lot of people in the Democratic Party seem to think that there is. 
On the flip side of that, we've seen what my book is about, which is, you know, we spent the last four years spending a great deal of time talking about the white working class, more often the white non-working class, rural poverty in places like Appalachia, which I've spent a lot of time writing about, and the various social problems like addiction that go along with that. And a lot of this ends up being an example of what I call Williamson's first law of politics, which is that everything is really, really simple if you don't know anything about it. And the book is an attempt to uh, give people some actual information about what's going on in parts of the country that a lot of the media doesn't write about. Well, let, let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit, because it strikes me as a bit of a cross between um, J.D. Vance's hillbilly elegy and Chris Arnotti's dignity uh, in many respects, although your use of language is much different than theirs. But one of the points that you make that I wanted to explore with you is that you write, in effect, welfare has made Appalachia into a big and sparsely populated housing project, too backward to yeah. thrive, but just comfortable enough to keep the underclass in place. Yes. So what we have in a lot of Appalachia, and the place I've really spent a lot of time writing about, is called Owsley County, which is in eastern Kentucky. And it's the poorest county in America most of the time when the census comes out. And what you see in places like this is that people who have any kind of skills or ambition or um, education typically leave and they go some other place and they find jobs and make lives somewhere else. Often not that far away. Sometimes it's in one of the larger cities in Kentucky. Sometimes they go other places. But welfare dependency creates a situation economically where you can have a large population of people who are left behind who don't have the really, really pressing economic incentive to do something else. And so you get what I call the uh, sociological solvency, which is it gets smaller and smaller, poisons get more and more concentrated. And so you get these really, really dysfunctional places like Alsea County where you've got um, you know, something like 70% welfare dependency, this whole underground economy based on food stamp fraud, quite a bit of drug addiction and that sort of thing. But on the flip side, very little violent crime, about half of the national average. So it's always a more complicated story once you yeah. go in and look at things and start talking to people and figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, I noted that. And, and I wanted to get your hand on why you think the violent crime rate is surprisingly low, given, you know, one of the popular myths that persists is poverty equals commission of crimes. And it's, and it's, and it's not true yeah. in black neighborhoods in the cities either. It's a small fraction of people that commit the majority of the violent crimes. But but that's the perception. Yeah, I think that it's not poverty that causes violent crime. I think you need poverty and density and a few other things as well. I, I wrote a big piece for National Review that's uh, in this book about um, Chicago and why it has so many murders and trying to figure that out. There's always you know, these kind of political answers people give themselves that flatter their ideological preferences. But one of the reasons why Chicago has so much sort of street-level homicide is that it undertook a series of very successful organized crime prosecutions uh, a few generations ago. And the thing about organized crime is it's organized. So whereas once upon a time you had a Chicago drug industry that was controlled, you know, a handful of middle-aged businessmen, essentially. Now you've got one that's run by a big dispersed group of teenagers, each one of them, you know, controlling three or four blocks. And you get a lot more um, friction that way. And so the underlying criminal energy, which comes from the sale and consumption of illegal drugs, didn't go away with the prosecutions when you put away Hoover and Barksdale and, and Fort and all those guys. The market was still out there. You just ended up having a much more anarchic and dangerous mechanism for serving the market. The same thing with getting rid of big housing projects in places like the Green Green. This is probably good policy, but it didn't do anything to solve the underlying sociological issues. It just dispersed them throughout the city. Right. And again, these are things that end up being really complicated. Talk to us about uh, sort of the instances of adverse selection that afflict some of these poor communities that you visited and, and wrote about. Yeah, if you've got any kind of ambition, any kind of chance at education, any sort of 
skills or even the energy to go out and pursue these things, you end up leaving these communities because there's really nothing there for you. Some of these places are places where there was some kind of economic disaster. You know, there was an industry that everyone depended on and that industry went away for some reason. That's kind of the, the case of San Bernardino, California, which I, which I write about. But in a lot of places in eastern Kentucky is one of these. There wasn't anything like that. There are places that have just sort of always been poor. And as the rest of the world gets wealthier, their poverty looks more dramatic in comparison. But um, so long as you have this group of people who are left behind, their problems stay there, and the people who leave take the social capital connections with them as they go. It's a very different thing to be a poor person in a poor community than it is to be a poor person in a, in a fairly well-off community. You know, I grew up in a, in, a, in a very poor family, but I grew up in a college town. So most of my friends, their parents were professionals. They were college professors. They were doctors. They were things like that. And so I could kind of benefit from their social capital, learn about things like how do you go to college? How do you apply for financial aid? That sort of thing. But if you're in a community where you don't have anyone like that, where you've never known anybody who went to college, anybody who has a good job, where this sort of dependency and dysfunction and despair is just how life is lived, then, you know, especially if you're young, if you're 15, 16 years old, you don't have the knowledge or the social imagination to really think about what your life could look like and then what steps you would have to take to get to that life. And that's a real problem for places, especially isolated rural places that don't have a lot of connections to uh, the broader communities. Social capital, that's really an important phrase, and I want to pick it up right there when we return with National Reviews, Kevin Williamson. Show.com. We're back with NationalReview.com's Kevin Williamson talk about his new book, Big White Ghetto. Before the break, uh, you mentioned the phrase, Kevin, social capital. And I want to pick up right there because it's such an important aspect of this discussion. We always only talk about dealing with poverty from a straight up capital perspective, how much more benefits are we going to provide and in what form are they going to take and so forth. And it seems to me that some of these poor white areas or big white ghettos, as you call them, may be an opportunity to rethink welfare state policies more generally because you take the race issue out of the equation and you just talk about incentives and you talk about issues like social capital that persist perhaps in a different way, but uh, but but are also relevant in uh, in uh, urban neighborhoods that are decaying as well. And maybe this is where we can have discussions we need to have about poverty in America more generally that we can apply regardless of race, because it's not so much about race. It's about incentive and, and environment. Yeah, the uh, the race issue is, I think, again, the, the complexity of it is, is, is underappreciated because the social and cultural differences in different communities around the country have to do with a lot more than race. And you can see this in that African-American communities in Tennessee are not very much like Baltimore or Detroit. Um, they're just very, they're different places. They're distinct places who have their own, you know, local ways of doing things, their own local problems and their own local approaches to things. And um, it is, I think, helpful to talk about situations uh, of rural America simply because a lot of people, unfortunately or fortunately, um, they, t- they tend to pay attention to the problems of white people, frankly, more than they do uh, the problems of people who aren't white. I think that a lot of the people who are the policymakers have just sort of 
developed the assumption for years and years and years that black and Latino neighborhoods, particularly in cities, are just going to be dysfunctional, and that's just it. And we just accept that schools are going to be terrible in Milwaukee, and we accept that schools are going to be terrible in Philadelphia, and we accept that there's going to be tremendously high rates of violent crime in these places. And I think that is, um, that's a mistake. And if it takes, uh, you know, highlighting problems outside of those communities to get people to understand the uh, the commonalities, then I think maybe that's a useful thing to do. Yeah. And and conversely, though, I would challenge that just in this way. Um, yeah. You know, white, white people problems, the, the missing white girl versus the missing black girl. Uh, OK. But yeah, there's something there. But when it comes to things like schools, I mean, the school choice movement, which, of course, is driven by conservatives. That is mainly about providing opportunities for poor Latino and black kids in urban centers. There's not a lot yep. of I mean, it, it certainly includes the, the poor white families in places like Appalachia. Uh, but mm-hmm. but I mean, the focus of the conversation is about, uh, you know, what's happening to black and brown families in New York and L.A. and Chicago. Yeah. And in fact, that's, it's a lot more for those communities, simply because if you're in a poor rural community, the next high school might be 75 miles away. And school choice isn't really much of a practical benefit for you. Whereas if you're in Boston or Chicago or Los Angeles, there are actually some you know, pretty good schools around that you might want to send your kids to. Uh, so it's not as if people never pay attention to those things. I didn't mean to imply that at all. I think the way things resonate with people culturally is um, – is tied up in who they are. You know, as I often point out, the, the policymaking conversation is is dominated by people who are, you know, for lack of a better term, elites, you know, yeah. reasonably well-off, right. college-educated people. And the conversation necessarily reflects their biases and interests, which is why we spend so much time talking about, well, can Harvard uh, practice affirmative action in its uh, admissions processes as though who gets into Harvard is it really the defining social issue of poverty in America? It's not. Um, but we spend a lot of time talking about college admissions and a lot less time talking about the high school dropout rate in Milwaukee or Baltimore. Uh, the reason I, I like your book, much like the other books I mentioned that uh, cover this from different ways, is um, is because it, it's empathetic, but it's not uh, a pity party. I mean, there's there's no pandering. Um, it, it's trying to you know have real conversations with real people and get real perspective, like you said, trying to understand issues that are a little bit more complex as you go from community to community than you might understand from just looking at it on the outside. And I assume that the people you spoke with, um, that resonated too. I mean, that you know, being treated with respect and hearing people out is something that maybe some of those folks don't uh, enjoy too often. Yeah, it's good to listen to people, and people like talking about their lives. Um, you know, I actually try to keep the sympathy out of the book as much as possible and, and, and focus more on accuracy. I often think sympathy and attempts to be empathetic, which is kind of a dumb word, but it's the one we use. Uh, I think they actually get in the way of good journalism a lot of the times because it makes the journalist think more about how he presents himself to the reader and to the public as this, you know, compassionate, semi-heroic figure rather than just you know, telling the story that needs to be told. So maybe there's some sympathetic stuff in there, but I've tried to keep it to a minimum. All right. Um, not a hero. Kevin Williamson, roving correspondent for National Review. The book, Big White Ghetto, Dead Broke, Stone Cold Stupid, and High on Rage in the Dank Woolly Wilds of the Real America. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much.
Welcome back to the show and uh, moving from our discussion about uh, big white ghettos in America with Kevin Williamson to uh, part of the discussion we're actually having with him. The, of course, that elites dominate the public policy making and sort of the accepted parameters of discussion. And the elite opinion right now in uh, many quarters, certainly inside the Beltway, is uh, just uh, Trump, Trump, go away. Uh, Trump is over. Let's forget that ever happened. The uh, ugliness is now behind us. And uh, as uh, Peter Weiner, writing in The Atlantic, argues, choose repair, not revenge. Even after Trump leaves office, the desire to seek retribution to nurse grievances will remain. Those desires are corrosive to our political culture. America's tribal warfare never ends. The anger never goes away. The affront is never forgotten. And um, it's not healthy to live in a state of constant agitation. It almost always leads to escalation. Yes, well, it's uh, already escalating. So you're a bit past post on that. And uh, this is somebody who is not a Trump fan. Doesn't matter that the president's efforts to challenge the results of the election are comically inept and that he'll be out of office in, the, in less than 70 days. That doesn't matter. He said, now it's time to, but this is the sort of putting on the cloak, the never Trump cloak of Christianity, choose repair, not revenge, even when uh, revenge has already been chosen by the left, it seems clear. And there's nothing Joe Biden is going to do to quell that, even if he wanted to. And I don't think he does. Well, uh, interesting, his colleague over at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Lance Morrow, had a bit of a different take. And this is the more important one. All Peter Weiner's take does is reinforce Lance Morrow's. Which is that elite opinion is never wrong. The uh, gives a couple of good examples. He uh, talks about at uh, his parents' dinner parties in Georgetown when he was a boy. Eisenhower was written off as an idiot by the deep thinkers. Couldn't finish his sentence, you know. Read Zane Gray westerns. Played golf with dullard plutocrats. Now, by contrast, Adlai Stevenson spoke in elegant paragraphs. Meg Greenfield of The Washington Post recalled in a memoir that when she first arrived in Washington in the 50s, what passed for intelligent cocktail party conversation might sound like this. Dulles. Oh, God, I mean, Dulles. <laughs> that surpasses for an argument and speaks to the depth of the vanguard class, I would suggest. And so uh, now, 70 years later, you could just replace that same argument you hear at cocktail parties by changing out the name Dulles for the name Trump. And it's not just at cocktail parties, but it certainly is at cocktail parties. Unfortunately, I've been to more than my share. Trump? Oh, God, I mean Trump? <laughs> That's the position. That's the uh, contention. Very layered, textured, well thought out, substantive, wouldn't you say? Right. Trump's not part of the elite class, even with elite money. It's not just about money. He also reminds us, does Morrow, that, um, you know, fashionable opinion, much like conventional wisdom, is always perfectly unfashionable and uh, not wisdom at all. Fashionable opinion in Great Britain in the 30s, when the uh, Nazism was rising and the conditions of a Second World War were coalescing, fashionable opinion in Great Britain was Winston Churchill was a crackpot and extremist, the deplorable of his time, one might say. And uh, this is an important example. Anytime Whitaker Chambers is called, you know I'm going to seize upon it. 
When I was a boy in D.C., writes Morrow, the best people said that Whitaker Chambers was a dreadful fellow, a sinister little fat man with bad teeth, strange and neurotic ex-communist, not to be trusted. Ideologically fashionable people have their standard of not our class, dear. Chambers was not our class, dear. Alger Hiss, on the other hand, an actual spy, was very much our class, slim, urbane, the Fred Astaire of the American establishment, and he turned out to be an enemy inside the perimeter, where Whitaker Chambers, the former Soviet spy who defected and converted to Christianity, is the hero. And by the way, one of the most important books of the 20th century, as I mentioned before, and will mention again at every opportunity where appropriate, is that uh, his autobiography, Witness, 1952 autobiography, Witness, is one of the most important books of the 20th century. And uh, to give you an example of not being of the fashionable set, but uh, having sussed out the lethality of the fashionable set's ideology or sympathy at minimum, Whitaker Chambers describing his exit from communism. What I had been fell from me like dirty rags. The rags that fell from me were not only communism. What fell was the whole web of the materialist modern mind. The luminous shroud which it has spun about the spirit of man, paralyzing in the name of rationalism the instinct of his soul for God, denying in the name of knowledge the reality of the soul and its birthright in that mystery on which mere knowledge falters and shatters at every step. If I had rejected only communism, I would have rejected only one political expression of the modern mind, the most logical because the most brutal in enforcing the myth of man's material perfectibility. And, of course, this speaks to Chambers' conviction that much of modern thought uh, is about elevating the autonomy of reason over man's, as he says, instinct of his soul for God. The intellectuals, had, who, some of the intellectuals who left communism sensed it was wrong but didn't really believe that another philosophical approach was right. Communism's barbarity repelled them, but they didn't grasp the evil that they the source of the evil they sincerely hate and such many ex-communists make uh, ineffectual witnesses against it. That's where Ritiker Chambers was different because of his conversion to Christianity and his knowledge of the reality of the soul and its birthright in that mystery on which mere knowledge falters and shatters at every step, the instinct of his soul for God. Well, that's not part of, uh, the jet set crowd. And it's um, why we find ourselves on this uh, merry-go-round with the elites. You had your little temper tantrum. You know, we heard you. We're not going to learn any lessons from the last four years. But the bad orange man is gone. And um, we'll uh, just sort of quickly move on into a more genteel era where we can once again comfort ourselves at cocktail parties as being so civilized and so enlightened, uh, you know, one telling lies to the other uh, while we're fomenting a sort of sentimental barbarism that undoes Western civilization. Because elite opinion, as Lance Morrow writes, is never wrong. This is Dan Proff. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We close today by talking a little bit of about Smartmatic and Dominion voting systems with all of these allegations swirling around. And I'm not sure that it's uh, particularly clear, even with what I know, as to what the relationship between Dominion voting systems and Smartmatic is and why this is relevant. Uh, according to a Penn Wharton business study, Dominion voting systems reach approximately 71 million voters in more than 1,600 jurisdictions in the U.S. in 2016. Dominion got in some trouble with several subsidiaries it used over alleged cases of fraud. One subsidiary, Smartmatic, a company that, quote, has played a significant role in the U.S. market over the last decade, unquote, according to a report published by England-based AccessWire. Now, that contrasts with what representatives from Smartmatic and Dominion are saying about their relationship. In a post by Smartmatic, they denied any financial connections to Dominion. Smartmatic has never owned any shares or had any financial stake in Dominion voting systems. Smartmatic has never provided Dominion voting systems with any software, hardware, or other technology. The two companies are competitors in the marketplace. Okay, here's the rub. You go back and look at this controversy going back more than a decade because uh, people are ridiculing the allegations that Sidney Powell, one of President Trump's election attorneys, and Lynn Wood, who we spoke about earlier in the show, are making about the history of Smartmatic and dubious election administration, perhaps election manipulation on the behalf of dictators. Sidney Powell tweeted about big tech suppressing freedom of speech to challenge outrageous election fraud. And she uh, has said on the Sunday talk shows, as well as on Twitter now, about Smartmatic's design, software design, and its utilization in Venezuela, both for a Chavez recall election, as well as for subsequent elections involving the dictator who inherited the country from Chavez, effectively Nicolas Maduro, of course. Well, back in April of 2006, there were real problems with the administration of the election in Cook County, as there are basically every cycle, but it particularly bad. And uh, that persists in the general election with some real irregularities that I don't have time to go into today, but I will tomorrow. And I just want you to hear uh, this Chicago Tribune report from April of 2006 about Smartmatic. Much of the angst about Sequoia, which is another vote software vendor that was at the center of the controversy in 2006 with the problems in Cook County. Much of the angst about Sequoia is related to its purchase in March 2005 by Smartmatic a company that provided voting machines for the controversial 2004 recall election of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Smartmatic's involvement in U.S. elections troubles some, including Chicago Alderman Ed Burke, Democrat, obviously, who has suggested the company's equipment could be part of a Venezuelan conspiracy to subvert American democracy. Chicago and Cook County election officials, meanwhile, were aware of the international controversy surrounding Sequoia well before they awarded the company contracts. A county consultant pitched Smartmatic's foreign ties as an advantage. That's how it was received by Cook County. And here we are 14 later talking about the same company that may or may not be involved in Dominion, but is considered a major player in the U.S. election administration market and uh, was reported by in, in one report that I read as a subsidiary of Dominion. Uh, more of the palace intrigue to unpack on tomorrow's show. Thank you for joining us in this Tuesday edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please come back tomorrow. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.